Good morning on this June the 12th, 2022. Today's lesson is on the parables which Christ taught frequently during his earthly ministry. If you don't know what a parable is or to whom they were given, you will before this lesson is finished. Thank you for joining us this morning. So this is parable number one. So what's a parable? Well, according to New Unger's Bible Dictionary, a parable is placing one thing alongside another thing. So a parable is a story that's told, usually fictitious, but beside it is a deeper spiritual meaning. Christ did this a lot, though he didn't invent it. Parables were around before he came on the scene. He used them a lot. Turn to Matthew 13, 34. You have a Schofield, we're on page 1016. Matthew 13, 34. All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them that it might be fulfilled which was spoke by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Israel's program had largely been laid out by prophecy. We know that. God, beginning with Abraham, laid out the track that God would use in order to deal with his favored nation, Israel. But some elements were kept secret until revealed by Christ through the parables that he taught during his earthly ministry. Let me give you an example. One thing we're going to be talking a lot today about are the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not around during the time of Abraham all the way up until just before Christ entered the scene. That was a rather new uh, invention by the Jewish religion to have leaders called Pharisees. And uh, so some things were not revealed until Christ revealed them. This is not to be confused, however, with the revelation of the mystery that Paul talks about. This is not the same. And though many have confused the two and put Paul's revelation back into the Gospels where Christ talks about uh, these new things that had been hidden, they're not the same. There were hidden things God revealed to Israel, and there were more hidden things that through Paul he revealed to the church, the body of Christ. When Jesus began teaching them, the twelve asked him why. Why do you speak in parables? Turn to Matthew 13.10. Matthew 13, 10. And the disciples came 
And they asked him, Why? Why do you speak in parables? And he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them is not given. So he wanted to let some know these great, wonderful, deep spiritual truths, but others he didn't want them to know. And what he's talking about, he wanted the believers to know that there was going to come a kingdom and they were going to be part of that kingdom. And in the parables, he describes that kingdom. But he didn't want unbelievers to know. Now, I would have missed this question when I was first saved, thinking, well, God wants everybody to know everything. It's not true. The first thing God wants you to know is how to be saved. Once he saves you, then he will give you the opportunity to come to the knowledge of the truth. But he's really not concerned. And matter of fact, he goes out of his way not to reveal the same thing to us, to unbelievers. That's not for them. His truth is for us. And that begins at the time of salvation. So I think they were a little confused, and I'd probably taken a little bit aback at what he said. So he taught in parables so that the saved Jews of his time could know the greatness of that earthly kingdom that he talked so much about. How about today? Does he want unbelievers to know the riches of his grace? I say no. Because the first thing he wants them to do is come to him in faith. And then he will explain it to them just like he has all of us. Look at Matthew 13, 12. For whosoever hath, hath what? I think it's salvation. To him shall be given. Given what? More truth, more knowledge, more information concerning that kingdom blessings. And he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, hath not what? Hath not salvation. From him shall be taken away from what he does have. What's that mean? Well, eventually his life is going to be taken from him, and then he's not going to have anything except the lake of fire. So this is a very important verse in this group of verses he's teaching. Those who place their faith in him as Messiah would not only be blessed in this present life, but so much more in the next life, in the kingdom and the kingdom was just the beginning of all eternity. Conversely, those who rejected his Messiahship would flounder in this present life and be eternally tormented with fire and brimstone in eternal life. All right, let's talk about this parable. This parable should be called the parable of the lost son. If you have a Schofield Bible, turn to page 1097. As Glenn this morning, Glenn uh, taught the prodigal son, and those without a Schofield, <laughs> wait a minute, I'll, I'll tell you where it's at. And why don't you have a Schofield? 
It is chapter 15 of Luke, right before verse 11. If you have a Schofield, it says the parable of the prodigal son. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It says the parable of the what? Of the lost son. I like that better because that's what it's about. As Glenn explained in Sunday school, uh, prodigal simply is the dictionary definition of a wasteful extravagance. And as you're going to see, one son wasted his father's wealth that he gave to him prematurely, and then before you know it, he was destitute. But anyway, it, uh, it, as Mr. Schofield does point out, it probably should be called the parable of the lost son. I'm going to read it very quickly, the whole thing, and then we're going to dissect it. So I'm going to start in Luke 15 and verse 11 and read to 32. And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto him his living. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took the journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. Now I'm going to show you what included riotous living in just a minute. And when he had spent all there, arose a mighty famine in the land. He began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. Of course, this is now in a Gentile country. And now he's taking care of pigs. 16. And he would fain have filled. He would have gladly filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, he came to himself, he actually realized the mess he was in. How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to, and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise, he had a change of mind, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of the hired servants. So he now humbles himself uh, uh, tremendously. And when he arose and he came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be married. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field when he came and drew nigh to the house and heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come and thy father hath killed the fatted calf because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him, and he answered, said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I may make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son has come, which hath devoured with living with harlots, part of his riotous living was with prostitutes, Thou hast killed for him the fatted calf, and he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. 
it was meet that we should make merry and be glad for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. This is a parable about a fictitious family. This is probably not a real event, but it represents something very important. There's a father, there's two sons, an older son, and a younger son. The younger son squanders his inheritance that he received prematurely, returns home destitute to find his father forgives him, and his older brother is jealous of him. I wrote this lesson years ago. A co-worker who asked me my opinion of this parable inspired this lesson. She had difficulty with it because she, a very strong Christian, which she still is to this day, identified more with the elder son in that she had not strayed from God. She had been obedient to God but couldn't understand while the elder son, she, was looked upon with disdain while the wayward son was lavished with praise. <laughs> My answer to her was simple. To whom was it written? Most think the parables, like everything else in the Gospels, are directed to the church, the body of Christ but they are not. Now, that doesn't mean we can't learn from them, but they are not directed at us. They are directed at two groups, and these two sons represent the two groups. Turn to Matthew 23. Matthew chapter 23 in the first three verses. Schofield's on page 1031. The first group are the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes. Those men sat in Moses' seat. Let's read Matthew 23, 1. Then spake Jesus to the multiple and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you, that observe and do. But don't do it after their works, for they say and do not. Here's my favorite passage on showing Israel was soundly still under the law of Moses. When a concern come up, Christ says, go ask the Pharisees, because they represent Moses. They will tell you what the law says, but don't live like they do. And you'll see why in just a minute. Now, let me, I'm going to pick out a few verses. Look at verse 13, 23, 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are going in. 14. You devour your widows' houses. In other words, they steal from them uh, till they're blind. You shall receive the greater damnation. Look at 15. 
for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte. They look everywhere to make one converted to Judaism. And when he's made, you make him two, two times more the child of hell than yourselves are. Look at 23. For you pay tithe. Now they had to pay tithe on everything. Mint, anise, and cumin are just small little, uh, uh, I guess, what we call them, seasonings, spices. They had to pay. They were so legalistic, they paid tithes on mint, anise, and cumin, but they've omitted the weightier matters of the law, like judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. They cared more about tithing on something unimportant than they were about showing mercy to their fellow, fellow man. Look at 24. You blind guides would strain on a gnat and swallow of a camel. How many of you heard that in your life? Well, that's where it comes from, straight out of the Gospels. Uh, 27. You are like unto whited sepulchres, sepulchres which were graves, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. So these Pharisees sat in Moses' seat. They were the leaders of Israel. They told you the, the tenets of the law, but their hearts were far from God. That's the first group. Now turn to Matthew 9. <clears throat> Matthew 9, verse 10. Page 10.07. Now here's the second group. Let me drop down. Jesus sat at meat in the house. Behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him. So the second group are the common people. The Bible calls them sinners. Uh, publicans were notorious because they had become uh, the tax collectors of the Roman Empire. So they were particularly hated because Rome was so oppressive in their tax, uh, uh, taxes on the Jews, and the publicans are the ones who collected, so everybody hated them. And that's who Christ <laughs> found himself with, not by accident. Many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto the disciples, Why does your master eat with publicans and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Go ye and learn what that means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's quoting Hosea. At that time, Hosea become far from, I mean, Jews had become far from God. Matter of fact, so much so that he called them harlots. But they were diligent in doing the law, but their hearts were far from God. So that's exactly how he sees people during the first century. 
So to whom was he sent? Who was Christ sent? Was he sent to everyone in his earthly ministry? No, he was not sent to everyone. The Bible is very clear about that. He was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But he couldn't reach those Jews unless they humbled themselves. Attitude meant everything during that three years in which he was Messiah of Israel. Now, now let's get back to another, another one in Luke. Luke 18. This is a very familiar one. And then we're going to tie it all together. Luke 18.10. Luke 18.10. Page 11.01. Luke 18.10 through 14. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee. Now we get the contrast. One was a Pharisee. The other one was a publican. I didn't say Republican. I said publican. I'm sure there were some Democrats there too. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then Christ said this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased or brought low. And he that humble himself, he shall be exalted. Attitude meant everything during that program. Notice the importance of humility and repentance in God's plan for Israel little background. From the time of Abraham, the Jewish people were part of a covenant relationship with God. That's something that most people don't factor in when they study the Bible. They were in a covenant relationship. He made them promises. If they obeyed God, they were blessed. If they didn't, they were cursed. We're not under that system. You can't apply what you have to them. But because of their backslidden spiritual condition, almost throughout the whole Old Testament, the Father sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to preach to them a gospel of repentance. That's why you see repentance so much when He's dealing with Israel. They were in a relationship, but they kept falling away. This parable is a son about a son who fell away. So the good news was the good news of repentance. Change your mind and come back. That doesn't apply to Gentiles. We were never in that situation. He never says change your mind and come back. He just tells us to come. Because we've never been in a relationship with him. And people continue to this day hold repentance to the, the top of the gospel uh, uh, track, but it's not there. The players. The father of two sons, 
Glenn said this morning in his uh, teaching on it. Who's the father? That's God. The two sons, the older son is like the Pharisees. The younger son is like the sinners and the, and the publicans. Does he love all of them? Well, of course he loves all of them. He said that in John 3, 16. He came because he loved the world. He loved mankind. He wanted to save them all. But in Israel, there were two groups, the leaders and then the common people. The younger son represents wayward Israel who asked for his inheritance, went away and used it foolishly until destitute, even spending money on prostitutes. He couldn't have done it any worse. Israel had done the same thing. They had strayed far from God. One time in Hosea, he calls them a harlot. That's a prostitute. Because they were prostituting themselves to other gods, other husbands. And God was furious over that. So they were in a mess. So the only remedy was to send his son to, to encourage them to repent and come back. So the elder son represents the Pharisees, the legalists, the keepers of the law, but whose heart was far from God. Now, let's talk about the other one, the backsliding. The younger son, when he says, give me, give me my inheritance now so I can just do what I want to do. Well, he blew it from that moment on. That's not what God wanted to do with the Jews. So he chose his own direction, indicating a desire to have his father's wealth, but not a relationship with his father. Notice when he got the wealth, he didn't move down the road a mile so he could be close to his father. No, he got as far away from his father as he could. And so much so, he went to a Gentile nation. And before you know it, people who get money and don't know how to manage it, it all goes up in smoke. And the worst position he could ever find himself is not only working for a Gentile. Remember, the Jews were to be in a favored position over the Gentiles. Now, he's not only working for a Gentile, he's taking care of their pigs. It's the worst possible scenario that a young Jewish boy could ever find himself. When Christ came to save Israel, they were in the worst possible spiritual condition that they could possibly be in. When Christ walked in to the scene. The son found himself where he shouldn't have been. Jews in a covenant relationship with God were to be close to their father God, but this young man thought he knew better. How many young people have we saw, seen in just in our lives make that same mistake? They know better. 
until they mess everything up and guess what they do then? Then they come back home to dad. All right. Eventually, after hitting rock bottom, the younger son did, was smart enough to have a change in his heart, a change in his mind. He knew he messed up. He returned to humble himself before his father, who upon seeing him at a distance, the father ran to the son. The son never ran to the father. The emphasis here is the rejoicing is not from the son. The rejoicing is from the father. He was so glad that his son had finally woken up, saw the errors of his ways, changed his heart, changed his mind, and came home, and the father ran to greet him. The father did not reprimand him, tell him he smelled like pigs, make him do penance in any way, but met him with open arms. The father was so happy with his son's return, he prepared him a feast of all feasts, and dressed him in the finest clothes. You know what that represents, don't you? Israel being saved. Going into the kingdom. And having a feast that lasts for a thousand years. And they're all dressed like royalty because they are. That's what this story is about. The eldest son you can taste his resentment. It's obvious. Look how you're making over him. I've done everything right my whole life. You never did that for me. But he does everything wrong. And now he comes home groveling and you treat him like royalty. That's the two pictures that these sons represent. Let's look at this first schematic. God's love. Did he love the leaders? He loved them. He didn't like them. Sometimes you have to love people that you don't like very well. He didn't like them, but he still loved them. The Jewish people, did he love them? Of course, he loved them all. The older son falls in this category with the Pharisees. He was haughty. He was, he thought, he had, he had such a sense of self-worth. He was just like his father. He was a chip off the old block. Uh, he, was, he followed the law every letter of it. If his father said, do this, he did it. No questions asked. But unfortunately, his heart was hardened. He did what he was supposed to do, but it, he had no love. He refused any sort of repentance. He saw his self-righteousness was enough 
But that's not how God looked on him. In fact, he was unsavable. Is there anything in his part of the story that showed any humility? Any repentance? Not a smidgen. You know where he was destined for? He was destined for the lake of fire. Now the younger son, well, he didn't start off this way, be it he eventually humbled himself. He was not a legalist. You know what the opposite of a legalist is? He's a free spirit. We see lots of kids that age are free spirits. They have the world by the tail. They know exactly what they're doing and how many of them fall flat on their face. He broke every rule in the book. <laughs> he, he, he knew. He knew he had done wrong. At least he admitted it. But he had a willing heart. He did have a change of mind. He did have a change of heart. Is he savable? The story tells us. My son was dead. He was a spiritual dead. He was a spiritual, spiritual dead man. The older son, and he stayed dead. The younger son was a spiritual dead man, but what? He found life, didn't he? So with Israel, salvation didn't come until this repentance came. This change of heart came. And then he found favor with God. Where will he be in the kingdom? Well, if there is a real younger son, he'll be in the earthly kingdom. This parable is about wayward Jews who strayed from God but were being asked to repent. That was Christ's whole message. They were already in a relationship. That wasn't it. But they had to come back to God. Come back to their Messiah. Would he have received them? Would he have received any of the Pharisees? Did he receive any of them that humbled themselves? Of course he did. He would have received all of them. When will it, it didn't come to pass in Christ's earthly ministry. We know it didn't. When will it come to pass? At the second coming. When he comes back and they look upon him whom they pierced. And when they see his hands and his feet, they will collectively change their mind. They will repent for having, having had blood on their hands for their ancestors having crucified the Lord of glory. The eldest son, and of course then they go into the kingdom. That's what the feast is about. That's what royal clothes are about, earthly kingdom. The eldest son, who was just like these Pharisees, he had nothing. He, br he kept the rules you know, people who keep the rule. I worked with an individual who kept every rule. He wouldn't take a paper clip because he thought that was stealing. But his heart was far from God. He used the Lord's name in vain more times than I like to. And eventually, he would actually blush when he used the Lord's name in vain around me. So I did hopefully get him to break that bad habit. Dispensational difference. Again, we can study this. We can learn a lot. It's not our good news. But see, they try to make it our good news. But that's, 
that's difficult with some of these things. Is it possible to put a square peg in a round hole? Well, if you have a big enough hammer, you can put any peg in any hole if you hit it hard enough. So preachers are trying to use this and make it a fit today, but it's not a natural fit. You've seen the natural fit. Here's the unnatural fit. Some, well, it's about believers and unbelievers. But which one is the believer and which one is the unbeliever? The one who never strayed, who never seemed to do anything wrong? Well, he turned out to be the unbeliever. The one who did everything wrong, he turns out to be the believer. Now, let me just, it's just my own idea. You may not agree with it. You know, most unbelievers, we would say they're haughty. Most unbelievers have no morals. They don't have a forgiving heart. They don't have any empathy. But I'll tell you what, I've seen a lot of unbelievers be very humble. I've seen a lot of unbelievers be moralists. They wouldn't steal something if they didn't have a food on their table. They wouldn't steal it. I've seen sometimes unbelievers have more of a forgiving heart than some of us. Have you seen that? I've seen sometimes they're more empathetic than we are. But here's the problem. It's without faith. And without faith, you cannot please God. So there'll be a lot of humble, moralist, forgiving, empathetic people spend eternity in hell in the lake of fire. I've seen a lot of believers be pretty haughty. I've seen them not have good morals. I've seen them be pretty unforgiving. And I've seen them not be empathetic when they should be more empathetic but they have faith. And if they have faith in the finished work of Christ, they're going to heaven. Now, here's the bottom line. How about your son or daughter or your grandson or granddaughter or some other person you know? You can be the most humble person. You can be a moralist who never breaks any of the rules. They can be so forgiving and empathetic, but without faith they are lost. You can have a child like that. The best child, you couldn't draw a picture of them to look any better on the outside and be lost. Now conversely, you can have kids who are sometimes haughty, who sometimes don't do the right thing, who sometimes don't forgive or be empathetic, but they have faith. Don't judge the book by its cover because many unbelievers who look like they are God's gift, are not saved. Sometimes our own kids and grandkids don't look very good on the outside. But I will tell you every time, 
It's all about the faith. Should we believers be like that? Absolutely. But we still have a sin nature. We still have the propensity to sin. But sinners, saved sinners, go to heaven. Unsaved sinners do not go to heaven. I want to do one more lesson, but not next week. I got something planned for next week. Then the following week, we have vacation in Bible school. I want to come back to one more of these. I want to do the three parables on the lost son, on the lost sheep, and on the lost coin, and show you how they all tie together. And Christ puts a little bow on them, but it's a gift for Israel. We can learn from it, but he's not talking about us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. We're thankful for the parables. We love studying the parables. They're interesting. They're, they have so much spiritual depth to them. But Father, we know the difference between us and them. We know the difference between the church and the nation of Israel. And Father, we can't make that mistake. We can't apply ourselves where we're not to be. We're not to apply ourselves. So we've learned that. We understand that. But unfortunately, many in the world have not learned that. So we pray that whenever we get a chance, in casual conversation, and something like this comes up, it gives us an opportunity to teach your word rightly divided. Thank you, Father, for all good things that come from above. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.